Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. episode 354 of The Sausage Factory. Welcome. In this episode, I chat to Dave Levy of One Hamza about their VR future sports sim, Racket NX. When I was a kid, I always thought that there would be future sports. You know, people running around with jetpacks and stuff. But maybe, just maybe I got it quite wrong because rather than actually seeing it outside, there would be people within another environment. And this is what Racket NX is. It's basically racquetball, or squash if you like, within a sphere. And you hit a magical ball, or powered sort of technological ball, against the inner surface of this sphere, which then creates special lights and effects and what have you. It's incredible. It's a game that has you looking everywhere in a VR environment. How often do we play VR games, but they try to stick you down to one particular forward view? Why? You don't have to. You can see in all directions. Up, down, left, right and behind you. Well, you have to look behind you. Especially with Racket NX. Because the ball regularly does disappear behind you. You'd have to go round and go, oh no, it's behind me. And it really exploits this fact. And we actually talk at great length about the fact that the player needs to be aware of where the ball is relative to them all of the time. And that can be quite hard to communicate especially when the player isn't actually really in that environment. So they have to use, there's no sense of wind or, or sound. or that kind of, Well, the sound they can do, but not, not other um, sort of senses that can give an indication of where the ball is. So they have to use little tricks. And it's quite interesting talk about that. If you want to know more about that, go on. then you should listen on to me from the past talking to Dave. So let's do that, shall we? Take it away, Chris. Dave. Yes, hello. Who are you and what do you do? I am uh, the creative director and a founder at One Hamsa. Uh, we are a studio that does VR games for the past like six years or so. Uh, our first title, Racket and X, uh, has been out for a while and has been doing us proud. 
And our next title, which is under work, is going to blow your heads off, but it's still not public. I know the 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 the, 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 the trials and tribulations of a creative mind. You want to tell you want to tell the world that you've just created the best thing since Mario sixty four. Sorry, everyone, if you hate Mario sixty four, I just plucked that from my mind. I don't know. Maybe just insert your favorite game of all time there. Okay. That's not even my particular favourite game. It's just a really good one. So, you know. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Um, but thanks very much for, for appearing on the show. Much appreciated. Um, how did you make your start making video games then, Dave? Yeah. Um, so it wasn't very straightforward, but uh, at the same time, it was 100% straightforward. And uh, what I mean by that is that... Um, I have been interested in games and uh, in art since I was a little child and has, have always tried uh, connecting the two, uh, the two disciplines. But really, my way into video games has been through uh, 3D animation. Uh, that was the only industry that was available here in Tel Aviv and in Israel when I was uh, entering the job market. And uh, it's really the core thing that interested me in the first place is graphics and um, and all that. And uh, basically, after several years in post-production and visual, uh, visual um, design and digital arts, uh, I found my first um, steps into gaming with a uh, studio you may have heard of called uh, Ubisoft, um, specifically at Massive Ubisoft in Sweden. Um, and I think it might be worth pointing out that in order to get there as a person who had no experience in gaming, uh, really uh, what I was doing the entire period that I was working in post-production was kind of doing my own things that are more gaming related in order to be able to prove to the world that I can do this kind of stuff. And eventually that was the stuff that, uh, that landed me my first job uh, in gaming. Uh, any questions so far? No, I mean... We've had Ubisoft on the show. They we talked about late last year. We had them on for um, Assassin's Creed Valhalla. I didn't want to interrupt you, but uh, that was a game that I did finish about a month or so ago. Sorry, regular nice. listeners, you've heard me talk about it. 140 plus hours. That was a thing. Um, <laughs> we we can talk about it afterwards, mate. But it's like um, basically, I found towards the end that the progression tree allowed me to become pretty much unstoppable. And uh, I was just monstering everything in my path, and to That's the point okay. where it, it, it's great to get there. But once you're there, it's like yeah. <laughs> it's a bit yeah, anticlimactic because yeah. it's like I, I, yeah. I know I spent a lot of hours trying to get to this point, but really, <laughs> yeah. That's what roguelikes do really well. They get yeah. you there, and then they kill you. Then they kill you. Yeah, yeah. Whereas yeah. in this game, it was just I just kept on going. Here's more skill points. I don't need them anymore. Have them mm. anyway. Yeah. It was very, it was very strange. <laughs> no, it's it's good to know that you you know uh, establish yourself in a, in a. I mean, you basically said, look, I want to work in this field. I want to work in this place, and yeah, you know, just basically, you you rather than sort of like just do as you're told in inverted commas, you're like, no, I'm going to go above and beyond and do things and demonstrate that I have an affinity to this medium. I understand yeah. it more than you're giving me credit. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I, I think I'm a very firm believer in uh, not waiting for anyone and just doing things yourself. And uh, it's very, very much also a product of my environment. Uh, this is a very Israeli kind of mentality. Right. And, and uh, yeah, and so really... Uh, 
even before I moved to Sweden to work at uh, Massive on the division, uh, I was I teamed up with a couple of friends whom I actually met in a global game jam, and we were spending at least uh, one workday of our weeks uh, developing our own game. You know, knowing absolutely nothing, having no experience whatsoever, just friends knowing coding, I knowing art, and having like our own repertoire of uh, gaming hours. Um, and really, the uh, move to Sweden was kind of the first official step where I was just like a child in a candy store. Um, I was brought for a certain, uh, in a certain capacity for a certain job. Uh, and really, I was just spreading myself all over the studio, helping the UI team, helping the designers, helping the world builders, helping the modelers, helping the level designers, you know, just trying to... Uh, uh, you know, uh, suffuse is that the word as much information and like knowledge as I could. Yep. Um, and uh, it was a fantastic experience for me. And during that period uh, that I worked there, I, I still worked with my friends online on the things that we were working on. Um, so constantly working for that thing, constantly kind of saying, you know, I had a very clear goal in front of my eyes. It's like, these are my friends. I want to make game with the games with them. That's like the, uh, that's the dream. Um, and eventually I, I came back from Sweden, um, more for personal reasons than uh, professional ones. And after a short period working in mobile games, uh, the opportunities finally presented themselves for my friends and I to open a studio. And when I say the opportunities presented themselves, um, I think it's, again, important to note that this entire period that I'm talking about, it's two years in Sweden and another year and a half in Israel doing mobile games. This entire time, we're doing our own games in our own free time. And again, if we wouldn't have been doing this, uh, these opportunities wouldn't have presented themselves. So it's kind of a, uh, you can't force reality into anything, but you can certainly kind of... Um, make sure that you're ready for it if it gets there or, you know, kind of encourage it a little bit. Um, and that's really like uh, the whole doing things yourself, not waiting for the world, the world will catch up with you kind of mentality. Yeah. Mm. Be the master of your one's own destiny. Thank you very much. You know, don't, uh, to the degree that you can, uh, that you yeah, can. Within reason. I know it's like we could go into a whole philosophical debate about choice. <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole <laughs> podcast and it's not this one it's um, not this, no. no but it's fascinating um mm. but uh yeah it, it yeah really the, i think really that's really important about the your your message about working together coming together as a collective and saying let's make a thing in our own time mm. it's going to be mm. hard we're going to do a terrible job of things we're going to go down a rabbit hole or some other you know uh, simile mm. that says yeah we're going to go down this path and realize it's a completely wrong path and suddenly realize that the act of creating something and it often comes up in this show is extremely destructive you mm. so, <laughs> you, you make so much i don't know you so want to go much. there <laughs> i know you make so much and you go see all that weeks of effort we're now going to go that whole block of thing that we made it's no good because it doesn't work with the thing we're trying to do. And that's the hardest decision to make, to take mm. all the effort and think that it was, in inverted commas, a waste of time. I know you mm. know that's not true. And everyone around making that decision collectively knows that it's not true because you spent effort and learnt things from making that aspect of whatever you're trying to create. 
But unfortunately, the actual thing that you made, that compiler, like, you know, this is awesome, but not for this game. Mm. <laughs> Just not for this game, you know? There was uh, many years ago, actually, I heard that uh, Alfred Hitchcock had a uh, rule, um, which is never fall in love with your scenes. Maybe it was shots, uh, I'm not quite sure, but uh, yeah. that really stuck with me way before I even was making video games. Um, and, um, and in video games, I think somehow this idea is even uh, mo more true than any other medium because in games, it's such an iterative process. You know, I, I always like uh, likening it to a spiral where you keep progressing in a certain direction, but in this looping kind of... Uh, fashion where you return over and over to the same ideas, you refine things, you refine backwards, you have to redo some stuff that you put in place in the early on and doesn't really quite match where the game is going. And, um, and this ability to kind of reassess um, your ideas or even your axioms to a certain degree in a kind of periodic way way i think it's one of the hardest skills for me as a game designer it's not to fall in love with the ideas not to fall in love or uh, kind of solidify even things that sometimes seems fundamental seem fundamental right sometimes you find yourself in a rut and you remove a block that seemed so fundamental to you for the entire time and everything else falls into place and um When you say yeah, game design, those things is making those decisions. Mm. It's finding that thing is the tricky. Yeah. yeah, 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 and being able to let it go, you know. Mm. Yeah, no sacred mm. cows, no sacred cows. Yeah, but when you said uh, the creative process, the process of creating something is uh, destructive. Uh, what I was thinking about more is the personal sacrifice and kind of opportunity cost that comes with the kind of, uh, you know, suicide mentality that, um, that often is really what enables, um, for me at least, what enables me to get to the most creative and uh, productive places uh, professionally, you know? Yeah. yeah. And uh, that, is, that can be really destructive. And the process of managing that has been, for me, one of the most interesting parts of game design, actually, of game development. It is. So my next question, and I think we've kind of, we had a bit of a virtual green room beforehand and did have a bit of a chat about your, uh, where, 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 you, where your thought processes come from. But uh, the question is really quite a blunt one, but it's something I have to ask creators, and it is this. What are your biggest influences? Oof. Uh, surprisingly, the first thing that comes to mind is an artist called Paul Bonner. Right. Um, even though in terms of like uh, games and game design, he's probably not relevant, but uh, just in terms of artistic development, uh, he used to draw fantasy and sci-fi kind, of, uh, kind of art for all sorts of board games and D&D and, and things like that. Right. Um, But um, more, uh, uh, you know, uh, more in terms of game design and uh, what I do, I, I think Blizzard Entertainment is one of my all-time, like, inspirations. Um, 
and in late years, even more so because I see the quality of their games and how good and inspired they are. And I also know how difficult it is to maintain that kind of spirit in a big corporation where there's just billions of dollars involved uh, and people and big teams and all that. And um, even though I'm not aspiring to that, I would really like to stay in a relatively small studio for the rest of my life, my professional life, at least for now. Um, uh, the, the graphics and the worlds and the cinematic uh, sequences that they uh, had in, in all of their games. And uh, those have always been to me like uh, the... Um, really the forefront of gaming. So you'll be inspired by their, their obsession almost, but it's not an obsession because I've seen interviews with many of their senior members of staff. And they've openly said that perfection is the enemy of creators because mm -hmm. it doesn't exist. And mm -hmm. they said, you can't do that. You have to understand that perfection is the enemy of good enough. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, to for people who, are, who don't create, who aren't creators themselves, good enough sounds horrible. Sounds like you're half-baking something. Sounds like you're not putting enough effort, like you're, to, to quote from our American friends, phoning, in, phoning it in, whatever that means. <laughs> but I um, can't quite say the word, but, you know, phoning it in. Um, but it's not true. I know it's not true. You understand it's not true, and it's a terrible mm -hmm. phrase. It's got to come up with a better one, but good enough is fantastic. Mm. You know, some some of the best games you've ever played. Oh yeah, they're good enough, aren't they? That's the point. Mm. It's good enough. And I, yeah, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, uh, on the one hand, that phrase has always made me cringe, and it still yes. does. Yes. On the other hand, some of the most um, illuminating, uh, you know, moments in playing games from an analytical perspective, you know, just going to some corner and watching the texture or noticing, wait a minute, when I uh, open uh, my cards, what's the animation that's actually playing? Um, the amount of times you realize that it's actually way simpler than you thought and it didn't actually hurt your experience in any way, you know? Oh, what? Opening my cards is just like a one-frame step and the sound is what sells it? I never noticed. I actually felt like my hand was opening a bunch of cards, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and so that is a, a good example of what good enough can and, sh and should be in, in gaming, I think. And um, I would say that the caveat to good enough is kind of um, pick your battles, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because, um, yeah, I, I, guess, I guess the examples are the ones I gave a moment ago. Mm. Well, this neatly leads me on to the next question. They do get tough as we go along. It's just like video games. Great. Mm. Uh, <laughs> the next question is, um, and I think you, I know the answer. Maybe I don't. I don't know. You might have hinted at this, but uh, what developer do you most admire in the industry and why? Um, I think that would have to be Jonathan Blow. Right. Um, I, I know. Braid. Braid was a great game. As mm. was the <laughs> I did enjoy The Witness as well. Yeah, um, I, I guess um, a lot of people dismiss him uh, for being uh, way up in abstract space and in idea space a lot. Yeah, and um, and sure, I can get that, of course. Yeah, um, but I think he is the sole 
or maybe the the, the flagship uh, representative of an aspect of gaming that is uh, still way underlooked in my in my view and that is the undeniable fact that uh, gaming is a bigger and bigger part of our our collective culture and what we do in our games uh, permeates our culture and changes it and as little people doing little games uh, our only voice our, our, our the strongest way we have to to affect our environment and our world is not through voting, it's actually through the kind of stuff that we put into the public domain, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, the kind of stuff that we, we contribute to our culture. And I think that Jonathan Blow, uh, I may not agree on his philosophies, but um, uh, the fact that he kind of spearheads this perspective of just got, like, guys, you need to be noticing what you're doing. You're having an effect on people's lives. You're programming the way their brains are thinking. Uh, you're, uh, cl- you know, moving around the Overton window. All these kind of things. I think that's a really important and underrepresented uh, uh, element in the whole industry of game design. Yeah, yeah, I concur with that. I think it's, uh, and I, like I said, I think. There's nothing wrong with people thinking in abstract. In fact, in this show, we talk a lot about it in abstract terms because we don't like to give away content of the game we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Because content is part of the experience. Um, so, for want of a better phrase, spoilers, or again, that's a wincy like phrase, and it causes mm-hmm. winces to. What do you mean, spoil? What do you spoil? No, basically, giving away things before. You know, so, mm-hmm. so we, yeah, we're big fans of abstract around here. It's fine. But unfortunately, a lot of people bristle. About abstract because there's no detail. They, they 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 throw it back and say, "Well, you're, it's there's no substance to this." It's quite the opposite mm-hmm. in my view. Um, but uh, people want to get down to the detail too quickly, and that's mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a folly. And indeed, uh, um, that's you encountered that yourself when you were doing your game creation or game jam. You just wanted to get straight into the detail first. And like, well, mm-hmm. we can't. We haven't we haven't get we've got an outline concept yet. Um, and uh, I, I still I, I follow that uh, when I'm creating uh, adventures for role playing games, which I do a lot because I'm a, a mm. DM or a GM. And I do still maintain it's a form of game design. I know nowhere nowhere near as complex as videos games, of course. But there is aspects that I actually lay out a storyboard of what I expect the adventure to be, and there will be a beginning, middle, and an end to it. How the mm. adventurers reach that or go through that experience is entirely up to them. Mm-hmm. But the abstract is still there. There is a beginning, there is a middle, and there is an end. And there is, yeah. you know, and there are villains and heroes in amongst this world, and there's a plot, and there's a thing happening, and the environment's affecting them. But all of this is still has a frame, and it still has an abstract concept behind it. Mm-hmm. So you may, people may lambast those who uh, just focus on, I say just, but do heavily focus on abstract. But quite frankly, frankly, without it, there would be no games. So shush. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, last question. Yes. And I have to ask this last question the first half. I hasten to add. Mm-hmm. And I have to ask this question because this is a question that every video game podcast has to ask, and it is, what are you playing right now? <laughs> um, well, my ongoing game is uh, still somehow overwatch i'm still okay. enjoying that one nice 
Um, and the latest game that I've played, I'm actually not playing it right now, is uh, Griftlands uh, from right. Clay. Yes, this uh, is the um, well, the deck building game. The deck building, yes, that you have, where you have a couple of decks. One of them is for negotiations, and one of them is for combat. Yeah, yeah, and it's, yeah, um, and everyone's grey. There are no true heroes in the world. Um, yeah, 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 kind of. And uh, you can be, yeah, it can be as great or as horrible as you like. Uh, yes. Yeah, but there are consequences to all, all of your actions. Yes, I wish the consequences would be harsher. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it feels yeah. like they've like reined it in a bit, doesn't it? But, yes. Uh, it, yes, it feels like it kind. Of, they kind of, um, you know, sandpapered the teeth a little bit. Like um, when the risk isn't real then things matter less. And, um, and uh, I, I, I really don't mean to, to say only criticisms about the game. I think it's uh, superbly executed. But to me, what was missing was kind of the, the, um, the premises, this kind of, you know, lawless, um, uh, doggy dog wastelands. Um, but, uh, but it was all quite friendly, really. Yeah. <laughs> Ultimately, it's a bit weird, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, Why yeah. are you being so civil? There's no, yeah. there's no society anymore. We're, we're gonna, we're gonna yeah, I came, I came to fight, you know? Yeah, it's like, it's, <laughs> this, is, this is weird. You're being all passive-aggressive now. Why? Shoot me in the face. You know, it's just... it's Yeah, when you encounter the, the, the whole world-building thing, the world, the people within it must reflect the world they're in. And sometimes people, unfortunately, project themselves onto the world and that's a folly mm. uh and uh that doesn't work out too well if you're making a world that's diametrically different to mm. the one you inhabit because yeah, that's here you are, you know, yeah you, if you're you know here you are, here's me in uh, uh northwestern europe uh and i would have a certain take on things you know i'm getting at you know with certain philosophical ways of thinking and seeing things and you have to detach yourself because I am burdened, as are you, as every person with a culture and living in a whatever culture they've been brought up with, are whatever word, better word or phrase, burdened, if you like, uh, with uh, certain tropes and understanding and concepts that you feel is like, well, surely everybody feels like this. Mm. And you and I know, certainly the, the older you get, you suddenly realise, no, they don't. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And when you project that into your, into your art, it's, uh, that's, a, that's a problem. Sometimes, mm -hmm. depend on the art, of course. If you actually are trying to reflect the condition of humankind, uh, and as you mm. see it, then maybe that's perfectly appropriate. But again, yeah, uh, yeah. I think it's just missing an opportunity sometimes. You know, yes, uh, yeah. you want to get into a different world that kind of, at least for me, uh, usually I want it to challenge me in some way. Um, and if it's kind of like um, uh, purporting to challenge me in a certain way and then doesn't quite do it, you know. Yeah. Um, it actually then actually I felt a bit disappointed by that but uh, yeah uh, I, I think um, you know I played the game as reference for uh, I was looking for some mechanics and um, I, I think it is super tight it's uh, really smooth and pleasant to play you know and that's ultimately I think uh, pro probably uh, very, you know, it's the reason it has, however, fifteen thousand uh, positive upvotes on Steam or however it is right now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, when you can use Steam, 
I mean, oh. last Friday was fun, wasn't it? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's uh, move on to the second half of the show, where we shall delve deep into Racket and X. So Dave, before I can go into my design questions about Racket NX, I would like to ask you, best best of luck with this, because I don't know how you're going to do it, but just describe for us, what is Racket NX? Um, so that is what we've been trying to figure out for the entirety of the game's life. How do we describe it to someone who doesn't know it no. in a way that is both truthful and appealing? Um, I don't have the solution, and that is my disclaimer. And uh, now I can go on to the actual answer, which is Racket NX is a VR kind of sport arcade game. Uh, It's a mashup of um, of racquetball, pinball, and I don't know if you know it as Arkanoid or um, uh, one of the brick-breaking games. Uh, Arkanoid was the big breakout, yeah. That was the big one for us. As invented by Steve Jobs, which I still got quite... Was it? Yeah, he made it on the Atari um, 2600 with, um, uh, yeah, with uh, Steve Wozniak. And, I, I don't uh, know that they they as they were like working at Apple, they they were commissioned by Atari to make this uh, breakout game, which they did. Oh, wow, so, there's a thing. So, nice. Yeah, you you inspired by Steve Jobs, aren't we all? No, <laughs> no. 
but yeah, he had some <laughs> yeah, really good so, ideas. But yeah, yeah. So so basically, what what happens in Racket is that you're in, in you're standing inside a uh, a giant glass dome with a racket and ball, and uh, the dome kind of has patterns appearing on the walls that you need to hit with the ball. So it's kind of like a game of squash. Uh, I don't know if England, it's squash or racquetball, but uh, they are the same. In the actually. UK, it's squash. Um, mm, in Israel, too. I was looking this up because I knew this question would come up during this show. Uh, <laughs> racquetball and squash, to the uninitiated, they are almost the same game. However, mm. they apparently are not. There's a major <laughs> difference between the two. The difference being one is played with a racket, hence racquetball, and the other one is played with also a racket with a different spelling uh, that is slightly different form. The actual, mm-hmm. the actual, you know, the implement, the bat, mm-hmm. if you like, is not the same shape or size or form. So you have a different speed of ball. So that's the difference between squash and racquetball. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but for all intents and purposes, yeah, it's, uh, it's, I think they're quite similar. You hit a ball against the wall, yeah. Uh, yeah, and... Um, and so that's the basic uh, premise of the game. The game has like uh, several modes, uh, race against time, endless runner, uh, and also a couple of multiplayer modes you can play co-op or versus. Um, and it's all set in this kind of slick, futuristic, arcade Tron-like uh, style. Yeah. Yeah, it, I can definitely see... Uh, it does feel like someone's vision of the future from 1973 and that's great mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know it does feel like a retro future thing you know mm-hmm. it's like oh this is what they will be doing in in the future you know yeah like <laughs> the whole glowiness of it all like the, the retro future stuff from alien isolation for example that had all like these big crt screens like why have they got CRT? <laughs> what's what's that about like well that's what they had back in 1979 okay because yeah. the yeah. flat screens didn't exist yet well they're, they're on embryonic but you know what i mean it's uh so yeah um good job well done. Thank you. Um, but it, just to be clear, it is a VR game. Not the first VR game we've had on the show. We've had a lot of VR games on the show, I'm happy to say. In fact, one of the recent episodes of Kane and Rinse, um, the, the, the mothership of our of our fine family of podcasts, um, was actually featured uh, Star Trek Bridge Crew, which is mm. a very famous mm. VR game, which you know was, was a great game, but sadly let down by the final execution. But that's a discussion for another mm. time. I want to talk about the ball retrieval mechanic. Yes. The ball retrieval mechanic in Racket NX is a great way, in my humble opinion, of reducing the sense of frustration when you fail mm-hmm. to return a volley, as mm-hmm. I call them, a, 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 a ricochet, a bounce, whatever you want to call them. I call them a volley. A return mm-hmm. volley from the wall as you smash the wall ball against the wall. Um, how did it come about? Why is it there? Um, we call it uh, the sling or the tractor beam, so I'll yeah. be using those terms. Yeah. Um, and um, it's actually one of the mechanics that evolved and changed and was tuned the most throughout the entire game. Um, and uh, I'm not actually sure what the original purpose was. <laughs> um, I can say that the factors were... Um, finding the ball if you lose it for initiatives. You know, people who just start playing, they're not used to VR many times, to 360 degrees. Often uh, you're enamored by everything that's happening and you can, you can even le- lose the ball. And 
for uh, for noobs, it's a very very important tool, right? Yeah. Um, yep. And um, so that might have been the first intention, or maybe the first intention was actually um, the this uh, sling's ability to kind of, uh, if you use it sparingly, you can really uh, influence the ball on its way back very slightly in order to be perfectly served to a forehand or a backhand or however it is that you feel like you want to hit the ball in that moment. Uh, so yeah, it's kind of I, a... That's where yeah. I'm at with it. Sorry, yeah. I just have to cut you off. What you described there is my evolution with bracket and X mm. is start off relying on it almost 100%, realizing that this is a bad idea because it loses all of its momentum when you do right. this, which is brilliant. I love that idea of, oh, you can use this thing, but by the way, the... The ball no longer has all the momentum we built up for the last 10 minutes. Good job, idiot. Mm. So what, what I do is I use it sparingly to make sure that, okay, I, I need a forehand. You're going to hit this with a backhand. I need a forehand. Mm. I, I need to hit it over to the right, otherwise I'm screwed. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, just nudging it, like using the force. I love that. I was <laughs> nudging yeah. it across and then just smashing the ball. Uh, it's so satisfying because the momentum and the speed that's the magic of racket. Mm. You've got the momentum going. It feels so good. So good. Mm, thank you. But, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. This whole, um, this whole mechanic for those who haven't played the game, the idea is that when you hold the trigger, which is actually the really the only button you, you can use during the game, yes. um, it kind of creates a tractor beam from your racket to the ball. Mm. And it calls the ball uh, relatively slowly compared to the game speed to your racket. But it also kind of does a roundabout way where it kind of, first of all, it positions itself more or less in front of you. And then it makes the remainder of the way towards your, your arm. So that the first thing that happens is that you spot it, right? Like if you lost it, the first thing is, all right, it's in my sight. Um, and like you said, we kind of slow, slow it all down and kill the momentum um, as opposed to, for example, giving you a energy bar on that or something like that, which isn't something you want to do for a tool that's anti-frustration, you know? Yeah, exactly. But it's also a great teaching tool. We'll talk about that mm. later on in another question. But uh, my next question is, again, something we talked about in the virtual green room, everyone, but we're going to re return to it now. Because one of the first things I said to Dave was on this topic. was, uh, while on the surface, Racket NX looks and plays in a similar way to Racket Ball Stroke Squash. And it's hot. I believe, and I contest, that actually it's pinball. <laughs> I want to ask, how much of an influence is the latter over the former? Where, where's what governs, or do, or, or did you desperately try to create a balance, or did you even care? Um, so pinball was indeed a big inspiration, but it wasn't one of the initial inspirations. It actually, the game inspired us to think about pinball, which in turn inspired us to design the game uh, with, uh, with pinball in mind. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the game is in our minds divided into several stages because we were in early access for a while and then we had early access too, and then it came out. So, um, and so every one of these updates, these kind of discrete jumps in the game's design, um, have taken the game more and more in the direction of, uh, of pinball. Um, even though I think the experience is uh, quite similar, there's a lot of tropes there, like the ball bouncing around uh, between like uh, extruded elements in the arena or things charging up and giving you power shots or all these kind of um, 
uh, very very pinball inspired mechanisms that kind of uh, first of all they're familiar but also the thing where you kind of you give the ball a push which is very skilled but then it kind of does its thing for a while and bounces around and checks marks and gets you score and it's such a delightful experience to me it is like uh, it's just so satisfying in pinball and in pinball and we kind of tried to recreate that uh, that that feeling with rackets absolutely i mean you get comments from the you know like good swing and like mm. that's ridiculous and there's, there's a, you know <laughs> that's impossible and you do feel like there are times that i've hit it just at the right spot and i'm tracking the ball because you have to we'll talk about it later i'm tracking the ball and like i'm not going to see this again it's going to stop <laughs> isn't it it's going to stop and it just kept on going hitting everything in the right spot and like Oh boy, I've got one of these. I've got one of these multipliers. Here we go. And this feels the same with pinball when you just smack it just at the right moment. The ball, you know, the ball juggling thing with with pinball where you gather the ball and then you swing it mm. up and then you know that that it's a very mm. very old, it's a very 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 old tradition. Well, tact, tactic of actually capturing the ball. Right now, yeah. no, I want the ball. Give it to me. Okay, right. Now I've got control. Now I'm going to send it on its way where I want it to go, not not gravity, where mm. I want it to go. That's that's the sling. That's, that's the uh, sling. what we yeah, do yeah. with the sling. Yeah. yeah, yeah, capture the ball. Works sometimes, but not all the time, because you can only get so much momentum from that. And again, like the sling, momentum is reduced. Whereas another way of doing it is you hit you hit it on the return, which the momentum is massive. The, the you know, but you've got to time it just right. You've got to aim, mm. and people, you know, that's the thing about pinball, and indeed. Racket NX is you get to the stage where you know how to hit the ball. That's the first stage. Mm-hmm. How do you stop the ball from going down the gullet, or how do you prevent the ball? From, how do you stop missing the ball? And once you finally figured out the relationship between the racket and the ball itself, because the ball is quite large compared to a squash ball. A squash ball is teeny tiny, which is mm-hmm. the problem with it. That's the, that's, the, that's the skill of actually trying to find this tiny black ball uh, flying around at million miles an hour. Uh, whereas in Racket NX, the ball is quite large and it's glowing. And uh, once you smack it and you actually get an understanding of where it's going, then you you then reach reach the point where you start tactically hitting the ball in certain parts of the wall to get the most points. And that's the really sweet spot. And that's the next mm-hmm. stage of skill level. And it's just really wonderful how you onboard players like that. It's really really clever. So you know, thanks for that. And um, yeah, and the whole visual feedback and audio feedback as well, which is phenomenal, really, really helps that whole experience. Mm, thank you. And, uh, yeah, I can uh, I can say that the audio in the game, um, you know, the game started for us. Uh, we were talking earlier about how the studio started and about opportunities that presented themselves. Uh, we, had a, uh, we have a good friend um, who works at Waves Audio, which is a big a digital audio company here in Israel. Um, and they were developing uh, the NX plugin, which does uh, surround sound, uh, spatial surround simulation. Right. Yeah. A- and really the game started as a technical demo for that. He, he was uh, in charge of the product. He was the product manager and he said, I want a VR experience that kind of shows off the capabilities of this positional audio. And this friend of ours, uh, Idan, uh, he went on to be the game's... Uh, audio effects artist, right? The sound effects artist. So um, I, I still think that uh, the audio in the game is one of its highlights. I think he did a phenomenal job there. 
Um, and uh, I'm always happy to kind of hear the game from outside when I hear people play it, but I don't see what they're playing. And I just hear the audio um, and I can tell exactly what's happening. And uh, it's so crispy. Uh, I think he did a phenomenal job there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Much undervalued uh, skill. Uh, not within Absolutely. the industry, not within the industry, but from without. Within the mm. industry, sound engineers or a good sound technician or sound designer is uh, worth their weight in gold. But yeah. uh, it's uh, outside the industry. It's not really understood. Um, sound is a strange um, sense, i found. But anyway, it's a discussion. <laughs> We're going to a lot of philosophy in this episode. I like it. It's good. So, <laughs> next question. The player is pivoting on a central spot in Racket MX. Yes. 360 degrees, which is not common, oddly enough, in right. VR, because most VR... People are tied via a cable, whereas Racket NX exploits the fact that it's running on, generally speaking, wireless. But we'll talk about that later on when we talk about what platforms is available. But let's assume that it's wireless, which means that uh, you have to remind the player that their field of view is greater than what they're just standing in front of. It's like it's a full 3D space, okay? Um, what do you do? What have you done in a visual design to remind the player? that this is true? Um, so I, I think players, uh, I, I've seen so many players uh, play Racket uh, as their first VR game. Yeah. Um, and uh, those are the players that take the longest to figure out that things are around you. And even in those cases, you know, my mom, for example, who was playing it back a few years ago, uh-huh. um, you know, it takes a moment, uh, but... Once they realize there's something behind them for the first time, which is maybe, I don't know, uh, two minutes into the game or, or less, um, in the worst cases, uh, that's it, problem over. And even though some people still find it uh, unintuitive to turn around for a few minutes after that as well, it takes them a while to kind of you know, ease into it. Um, uh, it, it. The moment you understand it, which is pretty early on, that's it, you get it. Yeah. Um, so, so I haven't really come across a problem where a player for a prolonged period just didn't understand what was happening. Okay, so you didn't feel that? I mean, because I felt that there's lots of visual cues and also audio cues to say, uh, ball's behind you. Oh, well, the ball is, the, the audio is positional. You know, that's Indeed, the yeah. core of the game in a sense. Yeah, so um, again, it was yeah. anchored around that sound engineering concept. So yeah. you're right, uh, it makes sense. I just wanted to point this out to the listener and to say that here we have a game that really is in 360 degrees you can look around and it, you won't be punished for it i mean when i first played vr which is when the playstation vr was released but uh, i don't know how long ago now three four years ago now uh probably longer it's best not to think about it but the first <laughs> thing i did the first game i played was rezzed because why not mm. you know it's, it's rez god's sake why wouldn't you and uh first thing i did is look behind me because I wanted to make sure mm-hmm. that I was um, comfortable in the space, knowing I looked behind me and it wasn't my living room wall, but instead more rezzed. <laughs> and uh, that's that's what I did. And I remember doing it when I played the X-wing demo. Remember that thing that it did a little demo of twenty-minute demo of playing of flying an X-wing, which was then became squadrons. Um, that's you know gets, getting inside the X-wing and looking behind you and seeing your your seat and your the R two unit sort of sitting behind. The road, the droid there. It's just, 
you know, that was important. So for me, I immediately did. And I love the fact that rather than it being just a thing, a visual thing that you can look at if you like, in Racket NX, it's integral. You have yeah. to look all... And the amount of times I started the game facing one way and in the end pulling off my headset, which is covered in sweat, sadly. Or, you know, credit mm-hmm. to your to your team for making such a uh, um, a, a game that, uh, that forces you a lot of lot of exercise everyone oh boy mm. this is not something you relax to um as you pull up my headset off it's like i'm facing a completely different direction yeah <laughs> and it's okay that's not a problem and it's just uh yeah. and that's a happy accident as far as i'm concerned because um uh, you like you said you, you spin quite a bit in the game um yeah. and and one of the things that happens is that actually disorients the remainder of the mental image you have of your real environment right yeah. Yeah. um and um i think this might be quite a nuanced point but i think it actually helps the sense of immersion where where you know where the after image of your living room kind of gets blurry by just yeah. spinning around. And at some point you have no idea what's happening in the real world. And so the virtual world is really all that is left in your mouth, in your mind. Yeah. Or in my case, the kitchen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Cause um, I live in London and we have very small apartments as you probably mm-hmm. know, you know, when I mean, you live in Sweden, you know, it's like it, everything's really small. Yeah. Uh, so it's the largest open space I have in my, my flat is, <laughs> yeah it's the same in mine actually as well yeah it's the biggest open space the living room's got all sorts of things in it and uh, very expensive things especially the telly oh boy mm. so you know i don't want to really swing around and because the the wonderful thing about quest is you can play it anywhere not yes. outside but pretty much anywhere and uh i, I do find it liberating the fact you can just you know, put it on and off you go uh, you can actually play it outside quite well unless you have uh direct sunlight yeah, direct, it, direct sunlight fucks with the uh, IR of the controllers, but otherwise it works really well. Yeah, I, I tend not to use it because it does say not to. Oh, okay, fine. I'm, I'm okay <laughs> with but the kitchen's nice and airy anyway. Because it's you know, <laughs> okay. So, last question. Hmm. I know all good things must come to an end, but here we are. Can you explain the concept of the energy meter? And how it is introduced into Racket and Neck. So, for the uninitiated or listener, basically there's an energy meter that's like ticking down as you're doing your thing, you're smashing the ball. Typically, not always, depends on the game mode. Bear with me. But if it's in a like an arcade mode or something like that, one of the many modes, most of the very very common to have this energy meter that can be depleted if you hit the ball in the wrong spot. You know, there's these little sort of like skull and crossbone things that if you hit them, it, where does that come from why is it there how did it come about uh yeah so the energy bar originally called uh, the timer uh, Mm -hmm. which is basically a countdown that you can prolong by doing uh good moves right um and that is both the lose conditions when the timer reaches zero you're out um and also in some game modes uh finishing quickly is actually uh the goal you know it's a speed run so Originally, um, the whole idea was just uh, we were building our incentive structure for the game, and uh, points wasn't quite enough. We needed a fail state. We didn't want, you know, uh, missing the ball or having the ball hit specific areas be like uh, the deciding factor of do you lose or, or 
or not because it, it's kind of limiting. Um, there's only so much you can do with it and with the difficulty and it's quite frustrating as well. And so uh, we came up with the timer and um, it actually comes with an interesting story if we have two minutes for that. I don't know what the timetables are. That's fine. We're fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so, so th- this was for me a really big uh, lesson in game design. Um, so originally, uh, you know, you're standing in this arena and it's about, uh, I think, more than 20 meters across. And there's walls around you and a floor between you and the walls. And originally what we did with the timer, which we thought was a great idea, is that um, the floor also lights up and there's kind of this orange ring around it that goes and slowly uh, kind of expands and expands in your direction, closing in on you, right? A little bit like the floor is lava kind of thing. Yeah. Um, And when it reaches, and that would represent the timer, and when it reaches you, it's game over. And what you're trying to do all game long is kind of Hit the, hit the hexes on the wall, hit the targets, and push it back, okay? Yep, yep. Um, and uh, we let people play the game, and no one noticed it. So yeah. we started doing some, yeah. So we started doing some, uh, first of all, we were surprised, because it's the floor. It's all around you, and it's moving towards you, and the game gets, uh, you know, when it gets uh, more and more orange, the entire arena becomes more and more orange. No one was noticing it. And we went into a long session of kind of making it uh, more prominent. So uh, we put uh, numbers on it that were counting down. We made it progress in uh, one second ticks instead of continuously. Uh, we had particles coming out of it. We had the, 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 the targets that you kill on the walls, spawn particles that fell into the floor and made it green and pushed it back for a few seconds before it became orange and started pushing in again. We did a shit ton of stuff. And people weren't noticing it. Um, it, <laughs> yeah. And eventually, what we did with the solution that you that you've played is we simply made a horizontal energy bar yep. that is duplicated four times around the arena, once for every quadrant, uh-huh. and it just drains out like any any energy bar or health bar or uh, you know mana bar that you've seen in any game. Um, and it's way cooler, and everyone understands it immediately. Yeah. Um, we've, been, we've been trained like, you know, Pavlovian dogs. Mm. We've just been trained like, <laughs> you know, the, how, I mean, someone asked many the silly question about how much of our lives we've been spent staring at bars going from left to right. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. You know, it's best not to think about. And we <laughs> Whereas flashy lights on a floor, you just think, well, it's a disco. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you don't acknowledge it, you know. It's just like, oh, it's just effects. These are yeah. nice effects, but no one gleans information from a floor unless mm. they're playing Dark Souls. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I guess the lesson here is like, you know, we didn't want to let it go because we were convinced it was a great idea. But evidently, if people aren't noticing it, it's not a great idea. No. And uh, that was an important lesson, you know, of kind of uh, do your reality checks. This is game design and uh, no one knows anything, especially not in VR. Yeah, yeah. But it's uh, oh, just wonderful mechanic, uh, really well realized. And it just it's just so easy to glance. It's always in your field of view. It's mm. amazing how you did that. For VR... To know where people's eyes are looking, it's fantastic. I mean, uh, I, I, one of the things I love to cite is the health bar for Destiny. 
it's this crescent just above mm. the top of your your line of sight. It's always there. You always know how much health you've got. You don't have to look. You don't have to move your eyes because it's always there. Mm-hmm. It's not. Yeah. It's not in your face. It's not. I mean, this is bungee, and they've been doing this for decades. They really know their stuff. But to have that simple little mechanic of showing where you are at, you know, your status. Is it good? Can you take risks? Because that's mm-hmm. the key. Am yeah. I in a position where I can take a risk? Because that's the amount of times I've just slammed it into a bunch of um, skulls anyway because I need to get that ball over to where I'm trying to get to it, okay? It's not ideal, but you go, oh, I'm in a situation. I'm going to slam this ball. I know what's going to happen, but I'm going to have to get it over there somehow uh, without pulling it away or trying to pull it away, which you can't do in many cases anyway. I'm just going to have to accept it. Is it okay? How's my energy meter? Oh, it's all right. I'll just go slam, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and it's not ideal because the points are going to go down, but at least you've finished the level, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So yeah, it's, it's, it's it's fantastic. Um, And uh, I just felt, I'm really happy that you told us that little story about realizing that you, the game designer is often the worst person to know <laughs> how people interact with their game. They really genuinely yeah. are. The, the designer, the, you know, you get too close to it and you realize that actually, no, this is this doesn't work because human be- you, you fail to understand that actually human beings view things in a different way and not, not appreciating the fact that we are now trained to look at bars if it is. Mm. Yeah, and it's also a lesson of just like um, there is a limited capacity of uh, to learn uh, new information at a time for for anyone, and it's just really a lesson about pick your battles. You know, what do you want the player to learn here, and make sure that there are as as little peripheral things as necessary in order to be able to really convey the information that is important to convey. You know, so having like a hierarchy of uh, of uh, mechanics where you put the important ones first kind of really helps you know where you are allowed to innovate and kind of challenge the player's uh, you know uh, preconceptions and where you're actually uh, faulting you know c- kind of uh, uh, diminishing from the game by being a smart ass and trying to innovate in a place that isn't really that important and which is quite confusing yeah yeah very true Racket NX, which is developed and published by One Hamza. Could you tell us where the name of the, the studio comes from? Uh, yes, I can. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this kind of Middle Eastern symbol of the hand. Uh, sometimes it has like an eye in the palm. Oh, uh, people, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, different cultures call it uh, differently. Uh, in mm-hmm. Israel, we call it Hamza, which is five in Arabic. Okay. Um, and it's a it's a cultural thing here as well. You know, there's uh, tons of uh, Middle Eastern and European influences in Israel, and uh, and uh, tons. Of, you know, uh, I live in Yafo. This uh, city is uh, mostly or at least half Arabic, so we have all these kind of uh, shared Middle Eastern symbols. And um, and um, really, it's not a very um, uh, you know, uh, honorable story, perhaps, um, because when we were thinking up what we wanted to make with the studio, one of the factors was uh, we are really sick of the parts of the industry that we have been working in. We really just want to give everyone the finger and go and do it our way and show them that it, it can be done this way. 
Um, and so initially, our, the symbol that we were, you know, we we're just having fun and laughing was kind of a chamsa, which was giving the finger. <laughs> so, so that was, and that was like, we were, we were pretty high um, and uh, on some really psychedelic stuff. And we thought it was a great idea. And we thought that we will think it is a horrible idea uh, later, but it actually stuck. We actually really liked the sound of it. We liked the uh, cultural kind of um, um, richness that it has to it. Um, and eventually we became five, five partners, which fits perfectly, even though we were just three at the time. Right. So, yeah. No, I just love I love asking that question because you've got a lot of different names for the developers. Yeah, I bet. And, yeah, uh, some of them are like, "Well, we're in a pub. <laughs> it was closing time. We we're running out of bits of paper, and eventually just settled on that." <laughs> and, or you know, and that's fine. That's also just as valid, right? Just as valid because you know, whatever. So yes, yeah. Racket NX is out now on Oculus Quest. I played an Oculus Quest, but an Oculus Quest 2, mm. point out, and Steam VR. Yeah, uh, it's, all, now, it's also on uh, on um, Viveport. It is. I was going to. That's very good of you to, to advise because. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Anything else? Uh, yeah, it's also on uh, Pico, which is uh, one of the big Chinese platforms. Right. Right. Um, uh, and uh, it's coming to a couple more soon. Nice. Excellent. Um, now I must confess that I use Marcus Quest with my PC to run Steam VR because those of us who've got reasonably powerful Wi-Fi and a machine that can do it, then it's awesome. Yeah, mm. to, to, to stream Steam VR onto your Quest too is amazing. That's how I played. <laughs> nice. It's, it's how I played uh, Half Life, uh, Alex. So yeah, yeah, me too, me too. Yeah, exactly. But uh, without without being too uh, brash about it. Um, yeah. I think Racket is a very contained game in terms of yes. what the assets are. And uh, actually, uh, if you play the Quest version, yeah. uh, I think you will find that the graphic fidelity is damn near identical mm-hmm. and that the game will run ever so sharper uh, yeah. if it's run on the Quest rather than through Airlink or Virtual Yeah, yeah so, I would highly recommend getting it natively for the Oculus Quest. It's one of the mm-hmm. many reasons I brought you on because it's such a visually impressive game as well as sonically and all sorts. So oh, thank you. get you on. So I'm so happy you are here, Dave. So thank I'm you. I'm glad that you did. Yeah, sure. And you're more than welcome to come back if you so wish because we do have a lot of return guests in the show. Uh, we've had a, a bout of them recently, I'm very happy to say. Um, and... Uh, but of course, you'll miss the first half because we already know your history. <laughs> we rock around. Um, good. Point That's good. This episode, but like I said, whatever it is you're working on, I know it's a thing, but we won't we won't know what it is until many months from now. But I'm looking forward to hearing about it. But until then, thanks, Dave. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Cane and Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash cane and rinse for early, extended and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube and at our website, caneandrinse.com.